in a world where most people watch movies and then forget about them. Three brave heroes join forces to watch them again and then talk about them. Join them in their epic journey as they go back in time, a decade and beyond, to revisit and break down films from a vast array of genres. Do these movies hold up over time? Are they classics? Find out on Retro Movie Roundtable. Starring your hosts, Brian Fry, Chad Robinson, and Russell Guest. Coming now to Headphones in Your Ears. Hello, all you lords, ladies, and knights of the Retro Movie Roundtable. Welcome to the show where we watch movies and then talk about them. Coming at you today, I'm your host, Russell Guest, and joining me is my co-host and good friend right here in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, Chad Robinson. How are you doing, sir? I'm doing well. I am also the guest host, so double duty today. <laughs> That's right. We don't have a guest today. Uh, it's an anomaly, and maybe it's just because I'm running behind a little bit because I've got a new little guy in the house, and uh, my hands are full, but uh, fear not. You will get your dose of Retro Movie Roundtable, and the movies will still come your way. 33% more of both of us. Yay. Yay. (laughs) So, uh, and Brian's in Sweden right now. Yeah. So. His bum is on the Swedish. Enjoying those meatballs and those uh, finely crafted discount, or uh, affordable furniture with Allen wrenches that you used to put together yourself. (laughs) I'm sorry, Sweden. I don't know much about you other than Ikea and... And what the Muppets have presented to us. You apparently have a talented chef. (laughs) Bork, bork. (laughs) We just lost all of our Swedish viewers. God. I love you, Sweden. Uh, Anyway, uh, Chad, people know you pretty well, but I don't think they know you well enough. They don't know you like I know you. Let's get them to know you a little better here. Let's let's break the ice here. So what is the last movie you saw? The last movie I saw was Sinister. Uh, it came up on what horror movie should you watch, and you entered a bunch of different things, and what you like, what you dislike. And I was a little disappointed to see Sinister come up, because it's one of those movies that gets a reputation of this, this gets all its scares from jump scares, uh, kind of like Insidious. But, Not all of them, but many of them. They're, they're more than I would like. In yeah, it was disappointing. It had, a, it had a great soundtrack. I liked the theme. I, I liked where it was going, but it was over overly reliant on jump scares. But the ending was memorable. I liked Ethan Hawke in that, but uh, I, uh, I, I felt like he was in a league above the movie. Yeah. Yeah. I, there is a sequel. I might check it out one day. I haven't seen the sequel yet, uh, and I could see where they, they could go. Uh, farther with it but uh no that was a good one for me the last movie i saw uh i did i really wanted to see this in theaters but we didn't get around to seeing it uh was bohemian rhapsody okay was the live eight concert uh was that portrayed well it was and in fact it, when you get it on uh blu-ray rental or just if you buy the blu-ray they have a full live aid reenactment set like they reshot the whole set and oh, so wow. yeah so th- as a bonus feature you can actually see rami and malik do the whole live aid set that's not all in the movie and but uh yeah so certainly they did it for sure justice more justice than you would ever think really yeah that's an iconic moment yeah and one of the things that i thought you know if you're at all familiar with queen and freddie mercury's story it doesn't have a happy ending. He dies of AIDS. I'm not spoiling anything when I say that. Uh, these are well-known facts. But uh, I want to say that the movie, I was prepared to go in and just have a 
brutally hard finish. And I thought they were very tasteful and tried to end the movie on the best notes that they could. And it actually felt good in, in the end. So as hard as that is to do, I do recommend checking it out. It has been a little bit criticized for some inaccuracies. But as we just talked about in the Braveheart episode recently, you do need to make a good movie. So... There's a balance you've... It's not a, it's not a document. You mean Mel Gibson fudges historical dramas? <laughs> Never. <laughs> well, uh, it, entertainment! <laughs> That's why we're here. The Patriot was very, very accurate. Very. I think that happened right? yeah. exactly like that. Yeah. Uh, that's what I wrote my master's thesis on. How accurate the, the Patriot was. I hope the most inaccurate thing about Braveheart was his hairpiece. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> The Scottish mooning was pretty bad. Uh, but anyway, what, name a movie that you resisted seeing but ended up enjoying anyway. I think it was Fanboys. I was not excited at all. We've talked about this a little bit. It wound up being on my top 2009 list. And Russell and Mary just... I'm going to blame you guys. You did not <laughs> pitch this well to me. And I didn't understand that at its core it was a funny Star Wars film. Well, Mary and I are born about eight days apart, and so uh, it was a birthday movie for not one but two of us. So if it did suck, then uh, you're you're killing two birds with one stone. So <laughs> birthday movie, this uh, you know. It was great though. It's in one of my top movies of all time. I love it. Uh, for birthday movies, for me, uh, that that and Hot Tub Time Machine are my two. I I, I have a birthday in March, and that is not necessarily the best of times for my proclivities. I love I love your goofy comedies and stuff like that. And I do like action movies and stuff too, but the blockbusters and all that stuff come much later. So March is not the time of year for these things. See, I have an October birthday, so this is uh, this is my prime time. I had Zombie Land on my birthday. That was a big one. My sister, who went with me as a birthday present, looked over at me and said, "I'm never going to the movies with you again. This is not her genre." <laughs> yeah I, I, you seem to have that effect on the people around you a lot your your love of horror movies doesn't seem to extend to your family members and closest friends for the most part i feel like zombie land can be enjoyed by all people my wife enjoys it that's true i uh I, i'll enjoy horror movies with you i'll be your horror movie fan uh for me uh one movie that i really resisted seeing that i didn't want to see at all my mom read the books uh harry potter when she was probably in i second or third book by the time the first movie came out so it's harry potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. And I did not want to go to this. I was at that age. I don't know what year it was, but I was definitely at the wrong age to take in what I thought was a kid's movie. And I got there and I was treated to a wonderful world of magic and wizards and fantasy. And I was I was hooked and I said, this is great. And I couldn't believe that I resisted seeing it. I, you know, the stars were all at an age where I thought that couldn't possibly be good. Things were written well with great characters. And I was hooked for the whole rest of the series. I never actually went back and read the books because I just kind of let the movie versions live on for me. But great, great series. And I'm, I'm ashamed to say at the very beginning, I didn't want to watch that. It's a big hole in my nerddom. I just, uh, I've tried the first movie two times now. And I, I saw it went around the first time it came out and I did not enjoy it. And I watched it again a couple years later and I just wanted to go to sleep. Huh. Well, I, if I know you and knowing you like the darker movies, they get heavy later. But the, the series grows with the audience, and I think that's one of the really cool things with it. So if you were, if you came of age when the books came out and or if you were slightly younger and then came of age when the, book, the movies came out, they're written to help you grow up with the movies. And I think that's just 
I mean, I mean, I love the Chronicles of Narnia, Lord of the Rings, and stuff like that. But those are always very consistent with their audience through, and I think that that's something cool J.K. Rowling did, and I think it carried through to the movies as well. Because by the time you're at the end of it, that is not a movie for tweens and twelve-year-olds. It's probably, I think it is rated. It's it's rated higher. Like I think they go, I think they go from PG to PG thirteen, and by the end you're kind of like. There's no bad language or violence in here, but this this is a this isn't a feel good moment here. So um, he killed the younglings. <laughs> uh, so what's the hardest laugh that you got from a movie? I think it's Rat Race, the the night at Bald Mountain, uh, or in the Hall of the Mountain King sequence where uh, it's Seth Green and the guy with his tongue pierced, and they're trying to jam the radio tower in their jeep. Are you for real? This is yours? This is mine, and you just hear that. <laughs> and it just escalates and things spiral out of control. I love that, and it makes me laugh every time. And it just, I think I cried. I think that's one of the few times I've laughed till I cried. I, I just blows my mind that you said this because this is mine. Oh, no. Bad radio, right? Oh, no. <laughs> I saw this in the theater with my parents and one of my friends from high school. And uh, I just, I, the whole theater was cracking up. And when it's infectious and everybody's laughing harder, you're laughing harder. Your friend's laughing. You're laughing hard at your friend. And just next thing you know, like my ribs are hurting and yeah, I, I teared up and like, you know, you, you sit up there and you pull your finger up to your eye and you're like, Oh my God, I actually can you test. Like you're really you're like, it's like, I am actually crying and my ribs actually hurt. So this is just amazing. Uh, so there are so many scenes that could evoke that though. Like the John Lovitz Hitler thing in the world war two <laughs> veterans gathering where he just starts yelling at them. Oh, the that was great. Or the Lucy's with the Cuba gooding jr scene all of that was so good so so good and and anything rowan atkinson does my parents did not laugh once when i showed that them this movie i was like i figured this was the universal comedy that people would enjoy because my parents don't really watch movies a whole lot it's like i'll show them this they nothing (laughs) i have not attempted anything since I'm going to go with the drama next time because that rat, for me, I probably overrate it to some degree, but I love Rat Race. It's such a good movie. And I just think it's wild that that's, that's also mine as well. Some similarities to the movie today. Yeah. And so you and Sarah have differing movie tastes, but you do have some common ground. But uh, given your differences, if you could win her over with one movie, what one movie would that be? There's a lot that she just looks at me and she's exasperated or annoyed. But I think because it's a franchise, I've got to go with Scream. Uh, Scream's one of the smarter horror movies. I I love that it's self-aware. Ghostface is a great killer. And all the movies, this is rare to say in a horror movie franchise, but all the movies are worth watching, one through four. And she saw the first one, and she had a nightmare. She does not like realistic horror. Uh, this, This bothers her. So she woke me up screaming in the night. And, uh, yeah, she will not see those anymore. I, I wish she would because all of that series is great. I've actually only seen the first one. And actually, Mary doesn't like that one either. And I haven't been able to advance through the series because I've, I've made resistance on that one, too. And it's hard to watch movies on your own. So at least it is for me. Yeah. So for me, one that I hold near and dear to my heart. Uh, so I, while Scream's a great answer, I'm going to go a different way. Mary and I really enjoy comedy movies pretty much across the board. We have very similar taste and it always works out, but something 
something strikes me as horrified when I see that she doesn't like the movie Airplane. I know. I don't I don't know anyone that doesn't like it. It is such a good movie. I just love it. I we own it. I I've, I've rewatched it I've, uh, several times and you know, it's just one the spoofing humor is unfortunately doesn't always connect for her. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't work. But unfortunately, airplane doesn't doesn't uh, doesn't land for her. Surely you must be joking. <laughs> I'm not joking. And stop calling me Shirley. Uh, but yeah, so if I could if I could win her over with one movie, it would be Airplane. I even bought one of those packages that had Airplane and Airplane Two. I I'm quite certain Airplane Two is nowhere near as good as the first one. But I would like to watch it someday, and I have no hope of getting to this anytime soon. That's that's Super Troopers for me. That is uh, that is my white whale. She saw one, and she will not see two with me. Okay, yeah. Uh, so today's movie, what are we going to do today? Today we are going to do 1970s The Twelve Chairs. The Twelve Chairs, and I'm sorry, I really did try on this, and I'm not, uh, I'm not being lazy, but it's hard to say how much money The Twelve Chairs made because the internet failed me. So not a lot. It did not. Uh, it was not fruitful. It, it, you know, I, I read at one point the producers, uh, which won an Oscar, critically acclaimed and was very successful, which was Mel Brooks's first movie that actually just barely broke even and didn't really thrive. Don't worry, it made up for it later with the re-release, the musical, the Broadway run, the, you know, the royalties and all that stuff from the producers. But uh, the 12 chairs came out and made even less. And so that's all I know. Less than almost breaking even is probably a slight loss. <laughs> so it's hard to say. This is, this movie is somewhat overlooked in Mel Brooks's career, and we'll get into that here in a little bit. So I can't tell you what where it was placed, or what movies were around that, but I can tell you this much. IMDb gives it a 6.5. Rotten Tomatoes gives it a 93% from the critics and the audience score. Wide difference here, like a 30% difference. Audience score gives it a 63%. Critics really do like this movie. Ebert gave it, you know, five stars and loved it. And uh, Leonard Maltin's really fond of it as well. And he's really picky and choosy with his comedies in particular. And so I find it interesting that this is critically acclaimed so much and the audience score is such a disconnect with it. And uh, before we go further, I'll also mention Frank Langella won an award for the National Board of Review Award for Best Supporting Actor in it. And Brooks was nominated for the Writers Guild of America, Best Comedy Adapted to Another Medium. He did not win, though. So why do you think, Chad, this was appreciated by the critics and not the fans? If I had to guess, I would say it's a product of the time. So at the time you're getting these critics scores in the 1970s when it's coming out, modern audiences are seeing this and they're going in and saying, I don't get it. I don't. I don't understand some of this satire. I don't understand some of this history. The Red Scare was really still around, but it wasn't as thriving as the 1980s. And this movie relies a lot on punching communist Russia. And that those jokes just aren't as relevant to modern audiences. They're not as... Well, as, maybe they should be. Yeah, <laughs> Socialism's I, coming back. Yeah, socialism in Russia has certainly been in the news a lot. But it, there's nothing like this. Uh, I mean, I know Red Dawn was the 80s, but these ridiculous scenarios where Russia's just this big bad guy. You know, they 
they were our prime enemy and this was a movie that was mocking them that's true it's just, it's wild so i'm gonna ask you had you seen this one before and if so what were your experiences and what was it like coming back to it now i had never seen nor heard of this i i felt pretty solid on my mel brooks movies but yeah this was a new one to me uh and what was your takeaway I liked it. It's not going to be in my top three or four Mel Brooks movies. Uh, I'm a huge fan of Blazing Saddles. Oh, so good. And Men in Tights is right there with me. And as a historian, history of the world and Spaceballs, you know, those are all up there for me. But, uh, you know, it's it's a worthy addition. I agree. And I had not seen this one before. I really, I actually shortlisted this one. Uh, I just had always realized that there's a couple of holes in my Mel Brooks library that I needed to see and this is certainly one of them and the plot description always intrigued me and so coming into it I was expecting satire and I would say that more than any other Mel Brooks movie this is not a satire it's more of a traditional story it, it, its source material comes from a novel, which we'll go into. A satirical novel. <laughs> it's true. That's true. Mel Brooks, uh, at his core, is big on satire. But I feel like it's if you want to say that Mel Brooks has a brand, this is probably the least Mel Brooks of any Mel Brooks movie. Now, having said that, I still really enjoyed it. Yeah. Yeah, it is very different from some of the spoofs you see later on. Yes, for sure. It was a little more serious and less slapsticky. There's definitely slapstick moments for sure, but I mean, uh, again, perhaps drawing on a dramatic novel, there's more, there's a little bit of a dramatic sense to what's going on in it too. Yeah, it's a little darker, and there's there's a little bit more heart I find in this than his others that are more surface level. You are right about that. But, I mean, again, compared to Blazing Saddles, I mean, it's as light as it gets. Yeah, there's no campfire scene in this. No, there's no fart scenes. So I did really enjoy this. So before we proceed any farther, you've got to watch out. There will be spoilers that lie ahead. So if you haven't seen The Twelve Chairs, go to YouTube. It's free to watch on YouTube right now for until the Internet takes it away from us. But it's, for free. <laughs> it's free on YouTube. Watch it and uh, come back and enjoy the rest of this podcast. Do you like movies but don't form a real connection with them? Well, maybe you don't know where to find the right kind of movie that you will truly love. Maybe you lack the confidence to fully love a movie. Do you struggle to form deep, meaningful relationships with the films you encounter? Hello there, I'm Thilke Lewis. If you are looking to find true love but having trouble, let Thilke help you. Because if there's one thing Thilke understands, it's love. Let Thilke help you find your true cinematic love with Retro Movie Roundtable on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. In no time at all, you'll find your remarkable movies that you will fall in love with. With the helpful insights of John, Brian, and Russell, you will soon learn what you need to know about movies. Don't hide your cinematic love that you found with Retro Movie Roundtable. Share it with the world. Tell a friend. Subscribe to the show. Give a show a five-star rating and review wherever you get your podcast. Like the show on Facebook. Email at RetroMovieRoundtable at Yahoo.com. Finding a long-lasting love can be hard, but with the Retro Movie Roundtable, you too will be in love with movies. What are you waiting for? Listen to Retro Movie Roundtable now and find love. And we're back. As previously mentioned, there will be spoilers that lie ahead. Chad, for those who haven't seen The Twelve Chairs since 1970 and they need a refresher, tell people what happens in this movie. 
I really wish I could fit a in Soviet Russia something does this to you joke, but I am just not clever this week, so this is gonna be a straight one. Story tells you in Soviet Russia plot tells you. I don't know. There we go. That was terrible. Please don't write in. Uh, in post-revolution Russia, we're welcomed into a dying woman's home as a priest is giving her her last rites. We then see the priest, Father Fyodor, hurriedly leaving the room as Ippolit, not even going to try, the woman's son-in-law, enters the home. He discovers she is... Ippolit Yes, Russell will insult the Russians, not me. Uh, he discovers she has hidden away a fortune in jewels from the Bolsheviks by sewing them into a chair they used to own. Ippolit rushes to find where the chairs are now stored and meets a local con man named Ostep Bender. The two join forces to track down the missing chairs. Simultaneously, Father Fyodor has abandoned his priesthood and is searching for the fortune himself. The three men crisscross paths in a series of misfortune till Father Fyodor winds up stranded on a clifftop and Ostap and Ippolit track down the last of the twelve chairs, which must contain the jewels, right? Ostep and Ippolit climb through the windows of the Palace of Culture, only to discover that the final chair is empty. A watchman finds them and informs them that the jewels were found months ago and were actually used to construct the building they're in at that very moment. Ippolit absolutely loses his stuff, and he and Ostep have to escape through the window and out into the night. Demoralized and bankrupt, Ippolit decides to join Ostep in the con man's life and begins to fake seizures as Ostep begs onlookers to give generously in memory of Dostoyevsky, who died of epilepsy. Well done, well done. It sounds a lot more serious when you go through it. <laughs> I had a serious tone. So it sounds so much more serious when you read through it that way. But again, it's based on a novel that's not necessarily designed to be a comedy at all. And yeah, it, it's satire, but it's more biting satire. It's meant to mock, but more in the tone of Animal Farm, not laugh out loud humor. Right, exactly. I, 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 my mind went to Orwell as well uh, with Animal Farm too, but the authors Ilf and Petrov wrote The Twelve Chairs in 1928. The storyline's very similar to this, but they wanted to make a commentary on the change of the revolution and the Soviet Union. So this is a weighty political piece of literature. And it's interesting that you mentioned that at the 1970, when this comes out, I think of us having gotten through most of the Red Scare by that time. I was definitely present in the 80s. I mean, you you have... But the McCarthyism's out of the, yeah. out of the way at this point, though, right? Yeah, yeah, we... We've stopped hunting down the commies. Right. And so that's fair to say it's still a threat, but you're right. It's still, it's still demonized. But I think one of the things that Mel Brooks does with a lot of his works, again, Frankenstein, that's a serious movie. He tilts it. Robin Hood, that's not a comedy. Uh, Mel Brooks finds a way to tilt it. Uh, Dracula, it, that's a very serious story. Uh, Mel Brooks finds a way to tilt that. And he, uh, I think he admitted in saying and talking about his own work, he has a way of angling three or four degrees away to find the humor in the situation. He loves the content that he's doing. So um, all of these things that he does, he appreciates, he loves, and he does it with love. He's not bashing this. And so he's elevating the 12 chairs uh, as a work that he cares about and likes and enjoys. But at the same time, He's finding a funny way of telling it, in which case, why don't more people do this? <laughs> I, I'm grateful. I mean, I know you, you researched this, and I did as well, 
But the original ending of the 12 chairs has Ostep being killed. He has his throat slit. And it's just like, oh my goodness. It's, By Borobinanov, yeah. like his friend, yeah. who, like, well, in, the, in this movie, they're friends, but yeah. I mean. He has no growth, and just the old aristocrat goes and slits his throat. Yeah, exactly. So I guess we're spoiling the book, but I have no regrets in doing that. We're a movie podcast, not a book podcast. <laughs> but you're right. And in the book, after the 12th chair is found, uh, Vorobyaninov slits uh, Bender's throat and is just yeah. cold-blooded. Yeah, can you imagine if the movie ended like that? It's like, oh, no. Well, what Brooks does in in lieu of that, he has Vorobyaninov get the 12th chair and run off on his own. So the sentiment of... I'm selfishly going to take this chair and go off on my own. That happens. Yeah. But it's so, and, and in fairness, the sentiment is there, but I much prefer the movie. Yeah, definitely. Uh, doing it the way Mel Brooks did it. Again, it shows that the character's being selfish and saying that I'm going to cut this other guy out who's pretty much done all the work for him, if you really think about it. He, yeah. would, he never would have gotten this close. Yeah, and it was nice to have that full circle arc of, him in the beginning saying, you know, I'm not going to fake a seizure and looking down on the con man because he'd been this aristocrat. Yeah. And now, you know, here he is at the on a floor faking a seizure and kind of smiling about it, too. One of the things that's really great about the producers is you have this uptight straight man corrupted and pulled into a fraudulent movie or Broadway production by an older gentleman. And in this case, you have the older gentleman who's an aristocrat, very, like like you said, has high standards and stuff like that. And he's being corrupted by the man who has been poor his whole life and basically resents the aristocrat lifestyle. He's a former aristocrat, so yeah. he's becoming that thing that he thought that he was above. And uh, it's just interesting. Mel Brooks, at least in these early works, does have this, I'm pulling you into this world. I think that he finds the repugnance both whether it's committing fraud and tricking old ladies out of their money or whether it's basically uh, lying to get jewels or to, uh, you know, lying to deceiving people into thinking of a disability. These are really repugnant things when you stop and just say it. But Mel Brooks walks up to that line fearlessly, boldly, and handles it. <laughs> give. Give. <laughs> so, yeah, it, 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 there's a darkness to it for sure. And as you mentioned before, this is this is a little darker than Blazing Saddles. This this has to be the earliest instance of of making it rain that I've seen in cinema. <laughs> so, but Mel Brooks wanted to make a film that followed the original novel more closely than previous adaptations, and there are actually don't ask me to count them up, but the internet says, and I'm sure there's something to this. There are at least 18 film versions of the Twelve Chairs. This is uh, the most popular one. So like if when you Google the 12 chairs, this is the one that's going to come up. And everything is true on the internet, as we've thoroughly established. Yeah, if you can name the 18 for me, then great. I didn't go to that depth. But the point is, it had been told before. I think there's a 1962 version that also comes up, and it's a more serious telling of the story. And for for those of you that are worried that we spoiled a book from 1928, I will tell you, Ostep comes back in the sequel. Yeah. They brought it back. 
I guess retconning is not just for comics. Uh, <laughs> you know, in comics, if you kill somebody and then your fans get mad and then they realize it, there's a wealth of ways to bring them out. Like whether it's a time warp or a different Earth dimension or you know re- re- reviving and you know Lazarus pits and all this stuff. Uh, in a book like this, I just think you're a sloppy writer. <laughs> Except for Uncle Ben, he stays dead. Over and over again, we have to keep killing that man. I'm grateful for the new Spider-Mans and just skipping over that. But now we're going to get new reboots, probably. I hope not. <laughs> so um, why don't we talk about the cast here? I'll give you, I I never do this part. I'm a little bit excited. I'm going to do the cast rundown. Ron Moody, who you can refer to him as Ron Moody for the rest of this podcast, being that you don't like saying. I've got it down as Ippolit. Ippolit Vorobyaninov is his character name and good luck spelling that that's a long name he's our main character he is the former aristocrat who falls on hard times and is desperately trying to seek these jewels so he can reclaim his his wealth frank langella is the ostap bender the poor man who stumbles across his uh, pursuit of these jewels and joins forms a corporation as they called it a, a, a band of not thieves but certainly unsavory people greedy people they're just they're they're a union of greedy people ironically plays nixon later on uh, he's dracula too yeah yeah and uh dracula dead and loving it i really think should have had frank langella pop in just for some way shape or form as a callback to this movie but uh maybe a little too deep of a cut the great dom deloise plays father fidor he is a morally corrupt uh priest to say the <laughs> least he is somebody who will take what you say in confession and exploit it and for his own purposes. And he lies, cheats, steals, and he's driven by financial means. And you just got to wonder how this guy ever got into the priesthood. <laughs> and he pops up. Mel Brooks uses him over and over again. Like he's used in Blazing Saddles. He, uh, he's used as the Emperor Nero in uh, History of the World. He's in almost all of Mel Brooks's later movies. Now, the billing doesn't have Mel Brooks here, but I'm writing it wrong. This is probably where Mel Brooks needs to come in in the actual billing. Uh, he plays Tikhon, which is the former servant to Vora Bianinov. He is now an employee of an old people's home where, as he says, what do they do here? Die. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so when uh, Vora Bianinov returns to his former home, he meets Tikhon, who's so very fond of him because he meets, he misses his old master who didn't beat him very much. <laughs> I loved him. <laughs> he didn't meet us much. Beautiful man. <laughs> uh, so this is a great character, and Mel Brooks does it himself. Love Mel Brooks popping into his uh, own movies. He, it's interesting. Sometimes he takes a smaller role like the mayor in Blazing Saddles. Yeah. Uh, but sometimes he takes a huge role like in Silent Movie or in... Um, uh, History of the World Part 1. This is somewhere in between. This is a supportive role. It's it's definitely a meaty role, but it's it's not in the length of the movie. Andres Vustinas is Nikolai Sestrin. He is a play producer on a cruise ship that Vorbyaninov and Ostap board a boat to try and pass themselves off as actors so that they can get closer to some chairs. And he is a colorful, very threatening-looking play producer. Yeah. It's a strange casting. Diana Copeland is Madame Burns. Uh, she is the rich owner of the chairs. And uh, her husband, Engineer Burns, is David Lander. These guys are great. I, uh, more on that here in a little bit. <laughs> They're out in Siberia, though. <laughs> they are. Elaine Guerreau is 
uh, plays Claudia in Havana. Uh, as she's a healthy woman, as Frank Langella put it. <laughs> and um, he ends up t- going home with her, and uh, right as they're about to uh, get intimate, her husband comes home and he passes himself off as a doctor of sorts who resuscitates her at home, out with the bad, yeah. in with the good. I love the Mel Brooks where he starts losing track of it and then it's uh, out with the good, in with the bad. <laughs> yeah. So right off the bat, this this movie gets me laughing in that scene because uh, it shows you that Ostap's character is a slimy con man. He goes from playing a guy with a peg leg and an eye patch that's been <laughs> hurt in the war and he sees a healthy woman walk by as he called a self-proclaimed or a uh, self-defined healthy woman and and, uh, he kicks out his leg pops off the eye patch even after receiving a donation and immediately goes home with her and you know he's such a smooth talker he gets out of this horrible situation that he's in by cajoling her husband like why do you let her carry around this stuff and i ought to report you he did kiss the priest that donated money to him that's true (laughs) busted him in the act i'm cured (laughs) so anyway what do we think about uh this cast there are a lot of names, honestly, that I, I struggle with that I'm not familiar with, but I did enjoy them. You know, we'll get into our superlatives later, but I, I'm with you. I always enjoy Mel Brooks's appearances in his own movies. He's great, whether he's playing a rabbi in Robin Hood or, uh, you know, the mayor in Blazing Saddles. And I really enjoy Tikkun here. Yeah. Oh, one other one that I should mention is Vlada Petrik plays Svetsky. He's the guy who steals prop from the play on the cruise line. Another greedy conniving character in his own right who they cross paths with what is it with you people in my throat <laughs> he has these very expressive eyes <laughs> uh, i actually wondered if marty feldman who's a another reoccurring mel brooks character maybe should have had this role but uh vlada does a pretty good job in his own right here so a couple of casting comments though that i want to pull out here is mel brooks was originally offering the role of ipole for Bianinov, the main role to gene wilder yep Wilder wanted to play the role of Ostap instead, but uh, Brooks refused and said that he's supposed to be devilishly handsome. And Wilder said he wasn't offended, which is good that he wasn't because the next two movies are like <laughs> the pinnacle of Wilder's uh, uh, career with uh, Young Frankenstein and Blazing Saddles. So, uh, but he he had done the producers with Mel Brooks, and Mel Brooks went back to Wilder at this point and wanted to work with him again, but just wasn't handsome enough. Yeah, yeah, that's harsh. That's harsh to be. Would you like to see Gene Wilder take on this role? No. I, really? Yeah, I, I'm okay with him sitting out this one. I, I really feel like Frank Langella, he just... Oh, no, not all step. Would you like to see him in Vorobyaninov's role? Oh, no, no. We'll, we'll talk about that later, but I, I thought it was very important that Ron Moody get this part. Wow. I actually like the notion of Wilder getting this part because he does hysterics. Yeah. So well. And then uh, as as the plot progresses, Moody's becomes more and more unhinged. In the beginning, he's just driven and like excited. But like later on, he if he even sees a chair, like he's like a dog, like looking yeah. at a stake and like um, and old Steph has to hold him back. And he's like, down, boy, down. Yeah. <laughs> Stop looking at them with foam coming out of your mouth, <laughs> gritting your teeth. <laughs> That's my chair. Yeah, I did think it was interesting. I know you and I would both agree on this. Uh, Peter Sellers, who winds up playing uh, Chief Inspector in the Pink Panther 
series, uh, Clouseau. We gotta do one of those someday. Yes, yes, we do. Uh, next time we do a a crime comedy, that's gonna be on there. But uh, he was considered and actually had the part for Father Theodore, but he dropped out at the last minute, so Dom De Luis took over. Oh, thank goodness. Yeah. I mean, I I'm, this is no knock to Peter Sellers. Again, if this movie had Wilder and Sellers in it, I think you still have a great movie. Uh, but anything you gain from Wilder, I think you lose with Deloise. Deloise is so good. Yes. Yeah, he's he's perfect. And I, I honestly think part of it is the extra weight he's carrying around. It just makes things funnier. <laughs> I, I'm sorry if you've got a couple of extra pounds in you, but somehow when you have that expressive face that he has, yeah. like it just, I don't know. It's a, he's high energy for a fat guy, too. And so... <laughs> This is a leaner Deloise, though, than yes, later on. Yes, absolutely. Having said that, he's still not lean. <laughs> uh, the 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 balding hair, pa- the pattern hair loss, that like the shabby hair coming off on the sides, looking crazed and deranged a little bit, also helps as well. He just physically is a funny man. Yes, and uh, his timing's great as well. So. And uh, as I mentioned, Frank Langella, who goes on to play Dracula in the 70s version of Dracula, because there's many versions, he was recommended by Anne Bancroft, who, if you're familiar with from The Graduate, mm-hmm. she is Mrs. Robinson. Yes. But Anne Bancroft is also married to Mel Brooks, and which is surprising to some degree because they don't seem proportionate to some degree. But uh, <laughs> Langella and Bancroft had appeared in William Gibson's Cry of Players, which was a Broadway uh, theater effort, and she recommended to Mel that Frank be in the part here of Olstep. So do we like Langella? Yeah. Yeah, I, I thought he he was very nice. I actually kind of wanted him in more Mel Brooks movies. Like, I'm a little sad. He, he strikes me as a very good con man. Yeah, I... There's a little bit of Chevy Chase that later that I actually see yeah. in his performance here. And I mean that in a very good way. I'm a huge Chevy fan. Yeah. So he's he's smooth in the same way Chevy is. Uh, he's sarcastic. He's uh, like he's always one step ahead of everybody. And but uh, deceitful and reserved. Like, uh, like I said, he's he's cool and always on top of it. Yeah, he is. He's uh, uh, even from his opening scene, he captures you and it's like. This is a guy I'm really interested in. Langella is also in Masters of the Universe. He is Skeletor. <laughs> so after playing Dracula and Skeletor, I mainly know him as these dark, threatening roles. Uh, you know, he ages well. Like, I, I think he's still a good-looking dude, uh, but he always plays these dark, threatening roles or whatever. So it was interesting to see him go back and play this charismatic yeah. character. It's interesting. I feel like... I've not seen that many of his other works, but I sure hope he does, he adapts into this more because he's very likable in this role. Oh, yeah. Going back to Anne Bancroft and Mel Brooks, I thought it was interesting. I was watching a documentary on Mel Brooks. Anne Bancroft, big star, uh, not used to guys going up to her with any confidence or whatever, maybe trying to act too cool or whatever. But she turns around and says, Anne Bancroft, I'm Mel Brooks, and I'd like to take you out. And uh, she looked around expecting to see somebody that was the ilk of Robert Redford. Uh, but uh, she turned around, it was Mel Brooks. And uh, <laughs> she told a really sweet story, too. Uh, so she'd say, he's like, where are you going? She goes, well, I'm going to Whitman's Deli. He goes, I am, too. Let's go. And then uh, she, then she would say, where are you going tomorrow? And he'd uh, say, no kidding. I am, too. And so 
Uh, it's amazing how Mel Brooks's destinations kept lining up with Anne Bancroft. <laughs> he he was absolutely smitten with her, and he charmed her, and they had a long marriage, and they stayed married all the way until 2005 when she died. So that was his second marriage. He said he got married too young. That didn't work, but uh, uh, his marriage with Bancroft is very sweet. Very cool. Yeah. Didn't know that. So let's talk about Mel Brooks uh, as a director here a little bit. What do you think about Mel as a director, let's start with the 12 chairs before we expand and go to him in general. Yeah, I mean, he's he's very competent. His his styles are interesting, particularly for this movie, though, because you get a lot of almost stop motion. You get a lot of the silent era techniques that he brings into oh, a talkie, if I can borrow from Singing in the Rain. <laughs> but, <laughs> but there's a lot of almost like Charlie Chaplin type moments in this movie. Absolutely. And again, Mel does a really great job of honoring the things that he loves and the silent movie enjoyment that he likes from the Chaplin era, as, as well as some other people. It's an homage to, to that kind of filmmaking, the scene in the train yard where yeah. Vorobyaninov is chasing after a chair uh, at the hillsides where uh, where prior uh, Vidor yeah. is running away with one of the chairs and Vorobyaninov is chasing after him. Or, or even when the the older women, or I, yeah, I guess he was dressed as an older woman. Uh, yeah, Father Theodore is dressed as a woman chasing him down. Yeah, so good, uh, and it's unexpected too. I I felt like all of a sudden, are we in a Monty Python? Yeah, uh, cut out of out of nowhere, uh, and the music kicks in, and it's just good fun. And I think that he shows pretty good competence in doing different styles within the same movie. It doesn't feel discombobulated or disjunct at all i mean the, there's a flashback scene where they go with this uh, warmer tone lighting and all the haze and stuff like that when they look back on the pre-revolution <laughs> and uh <laughs> i gotta hand it to him this is his second movie right and uh he's mostly a writer up until the producers and this is very different from the producers in terms of its direction style so he went out and did something different and i show i see growth in him as a director from the producers in this. So got to give him good credit. Mel Brooks is a talented guy, not just from a writing standpoint, but uh, comedy direction as well. This movie doesn't overstay its welcome though, either. Does it? Yeah. It's what? 93 minutes or something like that. That's right. And I, I sit there and I said, that cannot be right. Like look how much ground they covered and look how many scenes are in this. And again, that's tight, efficient filmmaking. I didn't feel like there were any plot holes in this. Whenever you shorten a, a dramatic novel or something like that down you, you know, to a comedy, you feel like you're going to start getting all these holes plugged in it. But nope, it stays pretty, pretty central. The chairs are all accounted for at all times. <laughs> and the crossing of paths of the, these different wacky characters, one thing leads to another, leads to another really well. He's really good with cause and effect. And this, and I got to hand it to him on that. He keeps his he keeps his lines straight. Yeah, I'll admit I wasn't ticking off like which chair. <laughs> like, okay, there was number eleven. Yep, yeah, we are at twelve. But it, he does uh, keep it pretty condensed. And you're right, there are quite a few scenes. It's not like we do chairs one by one, but it does take a while to get through all twelve of them. 
Yeah, and so I was extra appreciative that this was on YouTube because I'm sitting there feeding my little baby boy uh, in my lap on a bottle, and uh, I can't stop and take notes on everything like that, but to be able to have my phone, which with like one little free hand to like be able to pause and to uh, on YouTube and then flip over and like tap in a little note on my phone and whatnot. So two two long feeding sessions, uh, I uh, was able to watch all of this so on my phone. So thank you, YouTube. I wish all movies were on YouTube. <laughs> Thanks Disney for that. So I watched this. I watched this one probably three times actually. Oh wow! Yeah, the first time I just watched it with Mary, and it was just just watching it and having a good time. The other ones were more immersive, so uh, got to appreciate it. So producers Ron Gilbert and Michael Hertzberg, they took a chance on Mel Brooks when he made The Producers, and uh, they came back to him again and did The Twelve Chairs. And even though the producers hadn't made a lot, they believed in it. They thought it did well with the critics. And so it's out of the producer's success that The Twelve Chairs is born. He didn't necessarily reward them. (laughs) But there's such thing as not making money financially and making a really good movie still. That 93% critics goes to show. Do you want to talk more about Mel's style as a whole? I mean, it's still... If you've seen his other movies, you'll you'll recognize his comedy. It's it's very observational. There's a lot of sight gags crammed into every scene. Um, there's a lot of physical comedy going on, but it's almost like breaking the uh, fourth wall. It'll happen a lot of times where they'll essentially talk to the audience. Uh, there's there's at one point they look at the chairs. And there are seven chairs, and four get taken, and they turn uh, Epaulette and, <laughs> and Ostep say, I wonder why they're only taking four, and the guards say, We're only taking four because... <laughs> yeah, we're only taking four because it's accurate for the period. <laughs> and I'm like, that's why. So it's just very Mel Brooks. It's, uh, yes. He's not afraid to break that fourth wall long before Deadpool did it. Oh, for sure. He is fearless. As I mentioned earlier, he takes repugnant material and walks right up to it fearlessly. Again, no better example than than the producers to make a movie that heavily features a musical called Springtime for Hitler. (laughs) I mean, Blazing Saddles is dealing with pretty edgy race material. Oh, absolutely. I mean, and at the same time, he's disarming it and saying that it's stupid but at the same time, he's got to put you in that world to do it. And uh, similarly, this is communism. And so he takes you right up to the line. And I think you're right. Maybe it's not as edgy today. But I also think that Mel Brooks does something with all of his movies. Is he doesn't treat you like an idiot. No. He, do, he expects you to get caught up. He doesn't give you long diatribes on their backstories of the character. Uh, this is consistent throughout all of his movies. It is here, too. We get quickly that Vorobyaninov... Uh, is worried about his future. We later find out that he had money and now he doesn't. That's it. I mean, you get the climate of the uh, the Soviet environment throughout the course of the story. Yeah, Everyone's poor. They go through food lines, things like that. And there is good dialogue that's written in there to reinforce that of like, there's no personal property, haven't you heard? <laughs> uh, and all of his stuff was repossessed by the government. And you, you're seeing throughout the arc of the movie... By the time you're to the end of it, you can say you people today might not have a full appreciation for the history of the Soviet Revolution, but I'll be honest with you, 
even as dumb of a comedy as this is, he's given you a view into that world. Yeah, I mean, he he does a good job without saying it like you're, you've mentioned. Even when they go into the records, you see all the books are just in absolute disarray. It's not like walking into a library where the spines are neatly ordered. Everything's everywhere. It's uh, on desks. They're sideways. They're upside <laughs> down. So he's telling it even through his scenery of, hey, this is this is disorganized. This is grungy. It's not working out for people. And there are various peop- uh, characters that are brought on throughout the movie. They kind of mock that or point it out. But even yeah. without that, he designs it into his sets. And it shows you what tense grounds that the Soviet Union is running on, where it has like writes up on big red walls, like someone took the time to paint up "Don't waste paper on the wall." Yeah. And then there's another one. Uh, there's a sign that says "Think twice before knocking on any of these doors. You're disturbing very busy people." Yes. I mean, Mel Brooks goes on to be even more immersive with his backgrounds than he is in this movie, but there's definitely some of that here as well. There's a, a nice little moment there where. Um, where Olstap, Frank Langella's character, is walking down a corner and we see a street sign that has been crossed out and one reads, Sar Nicholas the Second Avenue, uh, where the new one scratched out says, Marx, Engels, Lennon, uh, XXXX Street, and is censored. The censored name is Trotsky. Yep. And so, again, this is history stuff. You don't have to get that to enjoy the movie. Trotsky, by the way, is somebody who was exiled by Stalin. Uh, as the USSR government took over. So you might not get that sight gag like you were talking about in the background or that extra little sprinkle in there, but that's actually secondary to what's happening in there. And Mel Brooks is really good at layering laughs. And that's something that's a trademark for him throughout all of his works. And we do see that here in, in some of the stuff that we're talking about. Another really cool thing about Mel Brooks is he focuses on the bigger picture. And I don't mean that in broad humor per se, but he doesn't just take something and make it funny. He takes the whole genre and looks at it, turns it on its head. He looks at the film world of how that thing's made. In this case, he's looking at a government. And Mel has a good way of doing this. He, he said in an interview that he enjoys spotting the insanity and the bizarre and the commonplace. And so that's, as a comedian, he's, he's finding the strangeness and what you find to be common. And so, again, by looking a little bit deeper into the Soviet world, he's finding humor. And the place is probably not that funny. <laughs> I wouldn't want to live there. No laughing in Russia. <laughs> again, socialism's back. It's a good thing, right? <laughs> Man, what? two straight movies where communism has been a thing for me. This is, is going to be my recurring role as a host where communism <laughs> is involved. I don't know what our movie two two times from now will be, but uh, it better have some communism in it. Tim Curry said, ah, communism was but a red herring. <laughs> <laughs> or listen to the last episode if you don't get that one. So I just wanted to go through a few things about Mel Brooks. So he's born a Brooklyn Jewish boy. His dad dies when he's only two. And that's that's uh, that sucks. And he realizes as he gets to be a little bit older that he didn't have a dad. And out of this pain comes an anger and resentment, he said. And in a way, comedy is this way of coping for him and to, you know, make it through this. And so that anger fuels his comedy in a strange way. Uh, there's, there's, there is unhappiness in him. And as he goes on to be a writer, he's depressed. He doesn't, he doesn't get into the drugs and the self-destructive things. But I mean, 
there's a, there's there there is there is a dark period of Mel Brooks before he comes out of it. He felt very stifled and like he didn't know how to get out of his own way. He's like, I feel like I've got something, but I just don't know what to do with it. From the time he was nine, he went to a Broadway show and, uh, you know, he saw a show and just said, that's what I want to do. And, uh, you know, he, as I mentioned, is also a very intelligent person. It's one of those things where people are always surprised what an intellect he is. Uh, in World War II, he was drafted and was put into a special training program where he taught engineering and foreign languages and worked in a training program. And then uh, as they ended that program and needed that talent, they, he was brought in as a corporal engineer into a combat battalion defusing landmines. He seems like a big goofball, but uh, Joan Rivers was talking about him and said, like, you know, he'll start talking to you about deep history. And there's a reason why History of the World Part 1 or this movie exists. Yeah. He's more than just fart jokes. <laughs> you almost have to have that dark sense of humor, though, if you're diffusing landmines. <laughs> hey, uh, I, if you can make me laugh while diffusing landmines, you got a special talent. <laughs> he also writes for uh, Sid Caesar as the stand-up comedian uh, or the Hollywood comedian. And then when Sid Caesar gets his own show and uh, he works with people like Carl Reiner, Neil Simon, uh, Caesar gets a show that calls Caesar Hours, where he works with Woody Allen. So he's he is rubbing elbows and collaborating with some of the funniest people from his generation. But Mel certainly holds his own, and uh, as we see later, uh, and his big moment where he starts to become on his own is in 1960. Mel goes to Hollywood in an act with Carl uh, Reiner, and they do an act called the Two Thousand Year Old Man. And if you see, I've only seen little clips of this, but it looks very funny where he talks about like, you know, redecorating his cave and like why, and like why he used fire and, and like, oh, we thought the wheel was a novel thing. And so it goes on to make an album. It wins a Grammy. And uh, he later goes on to win a Tony for his producers uh, musical. So he's a rare EGOT winner, Emmy, Grammy, Oscar, Tony. So uh, he goes on to work with Buck Henry, who's another really funny director. And they make the TV show Get Smart. I actually did not realize that. Oh, I love Get Smart. I also do, too. It's probably out of my love for James Bond and Mission Impossible. But Yeah. Uh, it wasn't too big on the Steve Carell version. It was okay. but I had fun with it. Yeah. It's content that was worth bringing back, I thought, because people would forget about it otherwise. That runs for five years. Diffuses landmines. Wins all the awards of every kind. As I mentioned, he goes into uh, the producers, and out of that, is where 12 chairs is born that takes us up to this movie siskel and ebert also declared him and woody allen as the two most successful comedy writers of their era they said that in 1980 yeah that that makes sense i'd like mel brooks so much more than woody allen yeah i'm with you there i'm not an annie hall kind of guy yeah that's not even a good woody allen movie in my opinion (laughs) here's my brian fry graduate hot take i don't like annie hall we're gonna get letters we might. I don't know, but uh, I'll I'll watch it again and give it a go, because I I I I was in Brian's shoes with the Graduate. I think I'm gonna get in this foxhole with you. I I I don't want to watch it again. Yeah. So anyway, I, I'm gonna go, I'm gonna say if, if those are your best two, then I'm think, I'm gonna say Mel Brooks is the best then. Oh yeah, Boys and Saddles is just amazing. It was said of Mel that he didn't want to. He didn't bother with small laughs. He wasn't interested in that. He as a goal went in every time to try and make you laugh hard. He wanted to put you on the floor. So uh, this movie though, is the least Mel Brooksy movie of any Mel Brooks movie. Yeah. I don't, I don't feel like this one went for the big laughs. There was a lot of, 
one-off sight gags and things like that. Again, it's clustered in between producers, Frank, Young Frankenstein and Blazing Saddles. It does feel like it's made it from somebody else. Yeah. So, uh, what did you think about the atmosphere of Soviet USSR? I mean, it's it's depressing. We talked about it. Everyone's kind of in tattered clothes for the most part. Even the government officials are a little bit ridiculous. And you see kind of the desperation uh, in our main characters to get any form of money. Do you have any insight out of curiosity to the Bolsheviks taking over? I actually am not. Yes. Yeah. Do you want to share some of that? Uh, well, it was horribly sad. They killed the children. The, the czar's children executed them. I mean, the the czar and their family, the Romanovs, they obviously had consolidated power and they were completely corrupt. Uh, so we had the Bolshevik uprising. And it, we all know it didn't work out the way that Lenin had in, uh, envisioned and Karl Marx, uh, Stalin basically corrupted that. Who knows if it actually would have worked? Probably not. But uh, yeah, I mean, this this was a horrible time where we see things like writing with your left hand, which, by the way, one of the characters does. Writing with your left hand was opposed. You could not do that. Religion was outlawed. Which they mention in this. That, yeah. I, I thought that yeah, was the, interesting. There was a pretty good joke about that. But yeah, yeah, I mean, that that is really addressing the... What's religion got to do in Soviet Russia? Yeah, it, It's just a tough time for everyone. You start seeing it with, uh, if you've read Animal Farm, or I think there's even a movie of it, but I've never seen it. I guess maybe he's surrounded by the atheism or something of uh, the Soviets. Uh, maybe, maybe that has him disillusioned or whatever, but I just think he's a contemptible character from the beginning. Oh, yeah. I mean, he shaves off his beard and he he's done. He's like, I'm going for jewels, not Jesus. Definitely. I want to say, is there a character by chance that he reminds you of by chance? I can't think of one right away. For me, it's Eric Cartman. Okay. (laughs) Screw you guys. I'm going to get the jewels. Yeah, I just, you know, Cartman does these contemptible things like, you know, tricking his friend into the end of the world and locking him in a bomb shelter and fooling him that, uh, you know, that uh, the whole world's dead and, you know, so he can go to a birthday party in his place. I mean, Cartman uh, will have you eat your uh, parents in a, in a bowl of chili uh, because he wanted to get back at you. So maybe Firefighter is not quite as conniving as a Cartman, but he certainly is morally corrupt as, as that. So this movie is actually made in Yugoslavia. I don't know why. But again, I didn't really know what we were getting in for at the beginning of this. I kept thinking we were in Italy in the beginning of this. Huh. I, I guess I could see... Although I, I, I think, think of Russia as being cold and snowy and... It's a pretty big place. It is. And that's what... Yeah, good point. <laughs> but I mean, I kept seeing what I thought was Mediterranean thing. And then the song that Hope for the Best. Yeah, uh, Expect, expect the, the Worst. worst uh, which we'll get to later. But I got an Italian vibe off of that as opposed to the Russian vibe. And I, I, well, it's I, Hungarian. Oh. <laughs> yeah, it's a Hungarian dance. Okay. But so, yeah, I mean, it's all with the USSR. It's all kind of lumped together. You have Yugoslavia and Poland and all of these countries that are uh, Russia had hegemony over. So as I mentioned, I don't have very good history over uh, this era. Are they doing a good job of immersing us in the USSR uh, at this point in time in the 1920s, Russia, former Russia? Yeah, I mean, it, it wasn't 
Well, we did visit Moscow a couple of times, but you don't really see the grandeur that that was uh, like the Kremlin and things like that in Moscow. But you you are seeing the proletariat's areas. You're seeing these uh, kind of hovels for the most part. These these small villages that are just full of poverty that the government didn't help out. They didn't redistribute as they thought they would. Mm-hmm. Mel Brooks was asked in an interview uh, what it was like shooting in Yugoslavia. He goes, there was nothing, nothing at night. We <laughs> ate wood and we had no fun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I love, uh, I, he got frustrated during one scene and he threw a chair into the ocean or into the Adriatic Sea. And the workers were appalled because they still kind of had this USSR mentality and they went on strike and they made him apologize because they said you threw the people's chair into the people's sea. <laughs> it's just a ridiculous thing that his uh, his crew walked off because he got upset and he had to apologize for throwing this chair into the sea. Yeah, Mel is a completely charismatic person. The, the actors, whether it be Bancroft or Gene Wilder or, or Deloise, who work with him again and again, have wonderful relationships. He treats women very well for the era, which is another cool thing that Mel Brooks is. If you watch his movies, he gives them something to do. He listens to them as actresses and lets them make the scene better. He gives them raunchy lines, which is not something that was done commonly for the time. He treated them as equals. And so a lot of the female cast members, whether it be Madeline Kahn or other female actors who worked with him throughout the ages, said positive things with him. Mel Brooks, though, it should be mentioned also that he admits that he's uh, narcissistic and wants to have his vision brought through and he doesn't necessarily take a lot of input or or steering away and so there's a reason he only does his own content and and so uh there's this other side of him too when things don't go well that he can he can kind of push back on you so yeah you see him on these interviews where he goes on like you know leno or conan or uh something and he's absolutely charming but sometimes you gotta throw a chair (laughs) <laughs> that's what bobby knight said anyway uh he was also frustrated with the yugoslavian extras who didn't speak english in one of the scenes in the museum the uh, guards were supposed to walk through the museum ringing handbells saying closing time closing time and in that in that scene though they say bye cloaky bye cloaky bye <laughs> and uh he couldn't get them to do it right but he actually thought it was funnier in the end or or he got so frustrated that he found it funny yeah <laughs> and so he ended up keeping that in the movie so shooting in yugoslavia didn't sound like a picnic for the uh, cast and crew. But it was cheap. I mean, for he said he paid $450,000, and that was for lights, cameras, and all the extras. That's it? Yeah. It, that is 1970 money, but still it doesn't sound like much at all. No, not at all. The wardrobe kind of threw me off. We have uh, Bender, and he's dressed pretty nicely. And I know he's a con man, but that threw me off. Like, he's got like this... He looks... Like, he's pretty well put together. It didn't strike me as out of place. He had a, he had a decent vest, but it, he could still pull off. Eh, I'm poor. Okay. I certainly didn't get beggar off of him, because he talks he talks in it, and he's like, I've had to beg every day. Was it the smooth skin or the good looks? I don't know. Maybe, I don't know. Maybe he just pulls it off. Like, yeah. maybe, maybe it's his suave persona that makes it work. I don't know. But I certainly didn't get, you know, as I was reading more after watching it the first time, you kind of have to see that, you know, he does resent the aristocracy, but he plays it so well. Yeah. Like he fakes it. He, you know, fake it till you make it. He seems like he can make it pretty well. 
Like, he, he's not who gets them kicked off the boat. Yeah, it's it's more jealousy on his part. He wants to be them. That's a really good point, actually. I didn't think about that. I, and speaking of the boat, I love that scene on the boat where <laughs> he, he, he's pushing Borobyaninov into the cast as an actor, and uh, he pushes him up on stage, and he's like, I know what I'm doing. I've been to I've been to the theater, and like he walks out on the stage, totally, <laughs> totally freezes up. His eyes get big. like He's petrified, just keeps walking, keeps walking, keeps walking, goes off the stage, and Brooks has this amazing cut yeah. where like the next scene abruptly... They're they're dropped on uh, island somewhere <laughs> with a lifeboat. Oh, that was awesome. So, what do you think about the soundtrack? I mean, they did a good job as far as making it feel Soviet Union era. Uh, they they get the Soviet anthem in there a couple of times. I liked "Hope for the Best, Expect for the Worst." That was kind of fun. Like I said before, it was based on a Hungarian dance, so it was still within the region. You know, it it fit with the setting for me. I was impressed that Brooks wrote this. I Again, Brooks, before he was a comedian, was a drummer and a pianist. And he's actually a pretty gifted musician. And I didn't realize later on, I read too, that he worked on a lot of the music for the musical, the producers that was so successful. They brought him back in the fold to help create this music. And so Anne Bancroft, his wife, encouraged Brooks to write music for and lyrics for Hope for the Best expect the worst and uh subsequently that song was in the movie and he goes on to create a song for all of his movies my favorite of which is uh the inquisition and <laughs> history of the world part one that is a very good one the inquisition what a show the inquisition <laughs> can't say no we're on a mission to convert the jews 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 <laughs> oh man and um so one of the things that impressed me, though, was how when they played it throughout as an um, overture throughout the movie and the instrumental version, it actually had some emotional resonance when they're playing. Yeah, it can hope for the best, expect the worst. Yeah. They don't dwell in it too, too long, but in this defeatist part where they're trekking across the country when they realize they have to walk all the way back to Moscow, which I don't know why they don't hop a train, but they appear to be walking miles and miles to get back to uh, Moscow, they they play this, and there's some nice shots while this is playing, and there's a melancholy moment in it. I think Ostep mentions that he's out of money at that point. I just, he knows how to get on a train, yeah. man. I don't know. Okay. I just, why is his resourcefulness stopping here? Getting into Russell's change one thing. It did eat at me. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> so, are you ready for a look for this? Sure thing. What do you have for us? We've covered a lot of it, but you know what? I am going to go with uh, Night Watchman that tells uh, Bender and Ippolette that Kaminsky found the jewels. And that's a reference to Mel Brooks, whose real last name is Kaminsky. Melvin Kaminsky. Yes. Which he changed to Brooks later as a stage name. Back then you had to change your name. Yeah. I'm trying to think of what actors today would absolutely have to change their name. Jake Gyllenhaal would have to change his name because it's too, like I said, it's... Uh, well, Nick Cage, he's Nick Coppola. That actually has benefit to it because Coppola helps you get somewhere. Yeah, but, uh, yeah it's, uh, I don't know. Occasionally, Idr- Idris Elba could have gone a little e- easier on us. Yeah, like, who knows? He might be Michael Bowen. <laughs> I don't know. Like, back then, musicians too. People, yeah. would, people would get 
their names changed to be more approachable and easier to stick in your head. So it's interesting how times change and people now go, ooh, that's exotic, and we'll learn to say your name. One of the ones that I want to bring up is the chairs that the characters in the movie are searching for were made by fictitious furniture maker Christopher Homs in London. The original book, the chairs were made in English style, had an English material for the uh, seats, and they were made in real life furniture by maker Heinrich Gams, who was born in 1765 in Karlsruhe, Germany, and then moved to St. Petersburg later. So they changed the chair for some reason. Yeah, that's an odd change. Um, I'm guessing in... You're talking about the budget of this movie? I'm guessing they found some cheaper chairs. <laughs> <laughs> they could have been any chairs. They just... I would have believed it. It wouldn't suspend my disbelief there. I never knew they would be in the museum. <laughs> Raver has some awards. Yeah, absolutely. MVP of the 12 chairs, Chad. I'm going with Ron Moody. He plays Ippolette. And it's just the physical performance that he gives that kind of drives the movie. We... Russell mentioned it earlier, but he goes from kind of desperate, slimy aristocracy to frothing dog who literally is held back and he just becomes a little more disgusting. Like he gets all this food that's just piled on heavy and he's just devolving into this uh, greed. Well, that and poverty like he's sliding into it slowly but surely. And it helps fuel Mel Brooks's physical comedy style for me. So Yeah. And I think it's worth mentioning that I think as we go into this, he and Frank Langella form, uh, again, a code of thieves, so to speak. Uh, they In the end, they form a bond that even though their mission is ended, as Olstep says, we've completed everything that we could possibly look to do. We're, we're disbanding. I thought it was nice that this movie, instead of cutting his throat as they do in the book, uh, that he... <laughs> says i still have value to you we're a team yeah and that there's a friendship and a kinship that says we're poor we failed but i'd rather be poor and stick together and that was the nice part of the ending even though even though they're faking a seizure and a disability (laughs) so that part's again that uh, yeah i don't know that's an that's an odd thing to go out on um yeah uh so my mvp though i'm gonna go with mel brooks i to take this content and to make it a comedy and it's very well competently directed for a second-time director, uh, small budget. And I love Mel Brooks. And again, coming in there and acting as well. So I give it to him not just as an actor, but for the writer, the vision, the big picture. Yeah, can't disagree with that. He was great. Best supporting actor? Brooks. Uh, Tekin's my favorite character in this entire set i wanted more of him i love the drunken stupor uh the line that you mentioned earlier of i loved him he hardly ever beat us it's just classic mel brooks i love everything about tikan i needed more i loved it when he was coming to his master he comes in drunk and falls down the stairs and like he's uh in such a stupor that he's like just moving his feet he's like i'm coming master i'm coming master i'm coming master and like his master just gets up and walks over and stands next to him he's like i told you i would come (laughs) and the other one is i like what happened to the dining room chairs the chairs they are (sighs) and falls asleep like just like right at a dramatic moment so great job on this character my best supporting actor is going to go with Dom DeLuise. 
Okay. I, I really wanted to give it to Langella. He his he nailed everything I wanted from that character. So it's a nod to Frank Langella. If uh, some, somebody else were here, I would hope that he would get picked too. But Dom DeLuise just cracks me up in every scene that he's in, and the crazy nature of his face like when he's in the trellis and he pops his head down he's like yeah. cheers <laughs> so he, or he runs into a rock wall i mean he's just he's totally coming unhinged over these jewels i mean he's great and drunkenly like swaying and singing to himself along the road yeah he just devolves this might be my favorite dom deluise in a mel brooks movie oh i've got to go emperor nero that i that's fair, and then you do like your Rome stuff. Yes. But uh, the, this this is my favorite Deloise uh, Brooks collaboration, of which I think there are five. Yeah, yeah, there's a lot. Who is your hidden gem? You thieved this from me earlier, but I'm still going to mention it again because the Yugoslavian extras working as watchmen in the museum—they're my hidden gems because I just love that they're saying "Cloaky bye, Cloaky bye." <laughs> So uh, my hidden gem is going to go to the curator of the museum, similar scene, and he, he's so stern and commanding. Yeah. And he's like, we, will, we have 11 chairs. We're going to take seven of them away. Why are they taking seven of them away? <laughs> and then like he looks into the camera. And because the, four is enough to represent the period. And then like, that's goes, why. that's why. <laughs> I love that scene. It yeah. just cracks me up. I also like it shortly thereafter. He's like, do you think we missed something? And he's like looking through a spring. And then like, again, Mel Brooks masterful shot zooms out or like cuts away. And then they're in the room. That's absolutely devastated in the museum. <laughs> I love leading up to that, the, the different bureaus, the bureaus of tapestries, the bureau of carpet, <laughs> the bureau of furnitures that don't have bureaus. <laughs> so, uh, I also like that as they're walking through the museum, we'll never find it. It's just not here. And they're, like, they're walking into the room and classic Mel Brooks is standing right yeah. behind him. And like Langella taps him on the shoulder and points to it. It's like, oh. <laughs> and then he's like, again, turns into like crazed starved dog mode. Yeah. And like he's about to like just run and take it. He's like, no, no, no. We actually have to think about this. My hidden gem, though, is Robert Bernal. He's the curator of the museum. Right. Uh, recast, though. Who would you recast and who would you put in their place, Chad? I'm recasting Frank Langella's O-Step. Oh, I know. I know. Like, he's he my honorable mention. Like, of all honorable mentions, he's, like, extra honorable for I, my supporting actor. I'm going with another handsome, leading Mel Brooks man, Carrie Elwes. Okay, so this is, like, if you made it later. Yeah, Robin Hood, Men in Tights wasn't that far off, but, yeah. I'll, I'll stomach that, then, because it's, uh, yeah. And, like I said, I also think Chevy Chase would really do a good job in this role yeah carrie later on does some uh things for uh psych where he is despero and he's this con man and this thief and he's very suave and he's very good at that oh he he definitely fits the malgo brooks humor well his, yeah. his, his quick wit is is definitely a good fit so my recast is going to be andres vustinas the threatening looking man who's the play producer on the on the cruise line he looks like he's, like, I don't know, trying to reassemble, like, death pieces to make the mummy rise again or something like that. He seems very threatening and sinister. He's got dark circles around his eyes. His his facial hair's, like, done up in a creepy manner. And, I mean, he makes a humorous line of, like, I look terrible. Why didn't you tell me I look terrible? And, like, <laughs> you do look terrible! 
do I have to tell you this? It's probably every day of your life. And so I think that there's an opportunity to bring some color to that role. I'm thinking Michael Palin from the, from the Monty Python crew okay. would, be, would be a great fit here. And um, I do like the line, though, that he delivers. I hate people I don't like. Yes. <laughs> Best shot, Chad. When Ostep is rowing the boat with Ippolette, there's a nice shot of like the moon reflecting on the water. And I particularly like this shot because they filmed it really late at night. And at 3 a.m., they lost sight of the actors. And Mel Brooks jumped into the Adriatic Sea and swam out to find them. Well, the guy cares about his actors, I guess. Yeah. Well, uh, Vorobyaninov said I can't swim, so. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know that, but that's a... Oh, yeah, in, like, the uh, in the okay. movie. In the movie, yeah, Langella's, like, yeah. rowing away, and then, yeah. like, Moody, Moody's, like, like going out in the water, like, please don't leave yeah. me, I can't swim. And, and then he has a change of heart. So often they get mad at each other and they're about to walk off on each other. They double cross each other, but they have these sentimental moments. That, yeah. that there's a sweetness to that. That I that was the first real one because Ostep gives him his coat as yes. he's shivering. Yes, and my first time through it, I actually wanted more warmth between these characters and I wanted more growth between them. It's not about growth. They're actually doing the opposite. They're regressing. They're 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 corrupted and enabling the, their their <laughs> behavior, which is again the humor of what we're seeing here. And uh, but there is this kinship that that uh, further rewatching did show for me. So I, I I like that scene that you're talking about for sure. My best shot is the fast action silent movie homage when Dom DeLuise is dressed as an old woman running out of the house <laughs> with a chair over his head and like and Vorbian and I was like chair yes. <laughs> like chases after them. It's just so amazing because like the, you have this fixed shot. And you see these tiny little like characters and Moody's got his knees picking up running in this exaggerated manner that nobody runs that way. Yeah. But I mean, going back to Palin here, it's just, I, I got this Monty Python vibe off of this. It, it felt like I was watching this little paper characters in the distance. And again, as they run down into the valley, I, I love it. Like he's chasing him in this very nonlinear manner that like is it's just incredibly entertaining to watch. Great job on that. So it's the pursuit to the chairs. Best scene. For me, it's Ippolette and Ostep when they first meet. I'm not going to do the whole scene. They're kind of doing this quick banter between each other. So Ostep is like, no, maybe if you weren't such a selfish pig, we could do business. Yeah, Ippolette says, I can't. I'm going. Wait. Why? Let's talk. About what? Things. What things? I don't know. Situations. I'm going. Wait. Why? Let's talk. About what? It. What is it? You know. I don't know. What we're talking about? We're talking about nothing. I'm going. You mustn't. I must. Why? The reward. What reward? For turning you in. Wait. Why? We'll talk. <laughs> about what? About the diamonds. The diamonds. The diamonds. Great scene. Love that. Good good pick there. And again, Mel Brooks takes this different style there, and it doesn't seem out of place. But he takes this thing that isn't used necessarily in the movie, and just it's it's a really good gag. Yeah, I feel like any other director would have like laid into that like too much. <laughs> this has gone on for two minutes too much. Well, not necessarily longer in that same run, but I figured that they would come back and do a callback and, just, yeah. and continue to to have more of those interactions that way. I feel like it's more powerful with this particular thing. One good long run, two word sentences, and 
frantically frantic panic yes yeah my best scene is going to be dom deloise asking for the chairs from engineer burns and his wife <laughs> and he gets off a train in siberia it's it's super snowy he plows into their house covered in this like fur jacket like and his hair is all disheveled and you're wondering who could possibly walk to my house in this situation but he does and like he comes in he's grabbing their knees and ankles and kissing their shoes and groveling and they won't have any groveling this is a soviet house (laughs) and he says uh he's like uh, I'm going to go ahead and go into my best quote because it's definitely in in here. And so they're, they're, they go together. He's like, these chairs. I must have these chairs. He wants our chairs. Maybe he's a furniture dealer. Are you a furniture dealer? Not for personal gain. I assure you, not for personal gain. My motives are pure. They're the best motives. I, 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 I think that you're going to be very impressed with my motives. Yes, yes. And then he's very pleased with himself and he just sits there and like, well, well, what? Your motives. You didn't tell us your motives. Oh, oh, Uh, come on. Come on. Think. Come on. Use your brain. Use your brain. Ah, yes, I've got it. The chairs were my wife and uh, her mother's before her. And now my wife is ill. She's uh, dying, 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 dead, dead. No, dying. My wife is calling for her chairs now that she is dying. (laughs) And... Just to watch him just wreck this person's home and yeah, like, he like, drags the tablecloth off. Just, he's, he grabs the woman by the legs and like yanks her off of the floor. He's out of control. <laughs> I love it, and it's all the better because Vorobyanov and uh, Olstep, and particularly Olstep, have sent him on this wild goose chase. These aren't even the right chairs. <laughs> he sent him into Siberia, where these are not the chairs, and it's just other chairs that look like those chairs that have also been repossessed. Brilliant move by Olstep. I love the goose chase that he's on. And I love that he's just coming apart going for these chairs. And I love that they actually go back later. And the same couple is again harassed by him. Like, <laughs> Here, take them. Just, I never want to see you again. I have to thank Madam Burns. No! Uh, Chad, change one thing. I understand it's based on a novel, but I had a tough time with the names, especially since they're not used very often. So it's hard to catch them in passing. And there are plenty of useful, easy to understand Russian names. You could have renamed the main characters like Peter and Nicholas, and you you could have easily understood it. It's culturally ignorant as an American, but I'm still projecting this on it. And they changed other things from the book so just change their names for me so so for Bianinov is not uh, it's not a win for you no peter what's wrong with peter <laughs> uh, well i'll admit i struggled with it the first time through and uh, when langella basically preps him to go up and imply that he is cousin michael and he's from kiev and that all the vorobyaninovs are dead i love it when he goes to the door and uh, he goes Again, this sets up the fact that he won't do well on stage. I love the fact that this consistency is there. But uh, he panics and he forgets all of his lines. And he goes, I'm Kazan Kiev from Vorobyanov. All the Michaels are dead. (laughs) Which is wrong in all counts and makes no sense. And um, I didn't quite fully appreciate that joke the first time through. Again, because of the names like you're talking about. But upon a second watching i knew who vrbr and i was and i knew that kiev was you know a place and (laughs) just great shuffling of the deck there uh my change one thing is going to be i don't like going out on a fake epilepsy fit they've done that earlier in the movie it was repugnant then it went fine i'm gonna want to go a little bit warmer 
on this. I want to just see them walking off into the sunset talking about schemes that they could do together that also sound bad. I don't particularly like condoning saying like, I've got this disease and I'm going to roll on the ground. You need to throw change at me. And so I didn't like that exit. I think the Dostoevsky connection and I got that out okay. You did. Good job. Uh, Good job. Was was important. So that was part of the satire and part of the gag. So I I agree with you. It's, it's never great mocking disabilities, but I think I think the tie to a cultural icon in Russia was important. Again, I'm okay with it the first time they do it in like the three quarters mark. I don't want to go out yeah. that way, and that's what the, that's how they went out. And I get so it. I just think. Putting, put, I'd, I'd like to see Lang Jail put that big arm around his shoulder and say, like, what if we... And then, yeah. like, start, start to, like, talk about this next crazy plot that they're going to get into, which, who knows, maybe that's the sequel of the book, the, the, the book sequel. Maybe they can actually take a little... Just a little uh, egg. I don't, I'm not saying they should make a sequel from this movie because I don't want them to. But I'm saying just, just a little nod to the literature. It's like, how long can you stand on one leg? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Oh, that would be great. <laughs> see? Yeah. So... All right, I'm with you. Yeah. Uh, I just think there's, I, I guess I'm, that's the John Hughes in me. I, I want, I want that like big heart at the end. So, uh, Mel Brooks doesn't always do that. Best quote, Chad. Yeah. You got yours in, but I've got to get mine in. So it, it's coming from the father here. Uh, maybe the Holy Father is a member of the communist party. Maybe, but the party is for atheists. How can a priest join the party? And then the father responds, church must keep up with the times <laughs> while like trying to yank a chair out yeah. of his hands <laughs> i also like the uh like again he's like you're a, you're awful i i can't even you're not even worth spitting on well you, you are, are. <laughs> yeah <laughs> oh man good stuff so chad do you want to plug anything you know what i'm gonna i'm gonna plug in ice i swear i'm not a one note human being but i'm gonna plug it anyways there's a horror movie Starring Samara Weaving, who is one of my favorite young actresses. She did The Babysitter, and she's in a new movie called Ready or Not. I got a chance to see it. It's a lot of fun. If you're expecting a typical horror movie, it's probably not that. It's got a little bit more tongue-in-cheek humor to it. It's not laugh-out-loud funny, but there's a lot of situational humor and horror to go along with it. It's a great movie. Go see it, people. Is she related to Hugo Weaving? She is. She is the. She is his niece. Oh, okay. So talented family, and she's she's just great. I loved her in the babysitter. She's now he's creepy. Yeah, she's better looking than he is. <laughs> a little bit. Yes, uh, but it's that time. Five star scale. Are you with the critics? Or are you with the public on this one, or somewhere in between? Because there's a great diastema <laughs> rating yeah. in between. Uh, five star scale. What would you give this? I think I'm closer to the the general public on this. Uh, I understand the history, but I think it's closer to like a three, three and a half. I'll go, I'll go three and a half because talking with you always makes it better. So yeah, I, I think it's a three and a half. Yeah, I, the first time I watched this, I was like, that's solid. That's, that's a four. And the second and third time through it, I realized I started seeing those little layers in there. I really appreciate the history of this and that he uses it in a comedy and we there's just so many things that are in here and i didn't just go through the gag reel of all the things that are funny in this movie so mel brooks is the man and maybe it's just me putting my fanboy hat on uh this is not the best brooks movie no this is not the second best brooks movie nope it's not the third best brooks movie it is not (laughs) but it's a 4.5 for me wow i love mel brooks and to say that it's not the producers it's not 
Blazing Saddles. It's not Young Frankenstein. It's not Spaceballs. That is like saying, you know, I mean, it's like that's not Michael Jordan's best dunk. It's like there's a lot of good ones. Yeah. So, yeah, 4.5. It, it, it started at 4 and I grew to a 4.5 through appreciating this more. It, it, it's a very clever, very well put together movie. So I think it's your favorite time of the year, Chad. It is. Do you want to help me pick a movie for the October season? I would love to. Well, you may recall last year, and I'm going to plug an episode that we did last year for the Halloween. It's the classic Michael Myers, 1978 Halloween by John Carpenter. It's one of our first episodes that we did. Uh, it's with our good friend John Flack, who was the godfather and the, one of the original hosts of the show, and Chad's on it as his first guest appearance. And if you haven't listened to it, please go back and download it. Because that's going to set the theme for some of these. So, option one, Halloween 2 from 1981. Sheriff Brackett and Dr. Loomis hunt for Michael Myers and traumatized Lori is rushed into a hospital. The serial killer is not far behind her. Option two, Halloween 4, The Return of Michael Myers from 1988. Ten years after his original massacre, the invalid Michael Myers awakens on Halloween Eve and returns to Haddonfield to kill his seven-year-old niece. Can Dr. Loomis stop him? And then option three, Halloween, H2O, 20 years later. 1998. Laurie Strode, now the dean of a Northern California private school with an assumed name, must battle the shape one last time as the life of her own son hangs in the balance. One last time, huh? Yeah. This is it, right? (laughs) No more. No. There won't be any more after that. Yeah. No. Okay. Oh, it's a shame Halloween 3 is, isn't is in the short list. I would go for that. Uh, Halloween 2 is probably a little too close to it. Uh, I think it'd be interesting to revisit H2O, so I'm going to I'm gonna go Halloween H2O. I remember at the time there was great enthusiasm for it. Oh, yeah. And I'm curious to see what it's like to come back to it because I myself haven't seen it in some time. Yeah, get Jamie Lee Curtis back. That was a huge huge step for the franchise absolutely so i look forward to doing that with you next time and to all of our lord ladies and knights of the retro movie roundtable please come back we also want you to reach out and to subscribe to us we want to hear from you what did you think of the 12 chairs uh, what did you think about any of the other movies that we've watched subscribe rate and review to us on itunes spotify stitcher google play anywhere you where you get your podcast those reviews really help others find the show It seems like a silly thing, but 30 seconds of your time to give us a little five-star review and just one sentence really, really, really can help us out. Cost you guys nothing, and that's the best thing you can do for us. Give us a like on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter at at movie underscore retro, or just search Retro Movie Roundtable. I'm not Twitter hip, so these these at things are hard (laughs) for me. Uh, Email us at retromovieroundtable at yahoo.com. As always, thank you for listening. Be good to each other, and watch more movies. Chad? Two legs bad, four legs good.